We're going to pick back up on our series in Galatians tonight, after taking a week off last week. And uh, we're continuing to look at this, this whole section here in the middle of the book, which is really all about identity. Uh, in, in chapter 3, verse 26 through chapter, or verse 7 of, of this chapter 4, Paul's main idea that he is trying to convey to us is the identity that we are given in Christ. He's not talking about an identity that we can create or maintain. Rather, he's talking about an identity that we receive by grace. So that Paul, therefore, in verse 26, which we just read, he writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And the essence of this new identity is essentially this, to to know yourself as God's child and to know God as your father. I would venture to say that there is probably no more important teaching in the scriptures for you to personally grasp and come back to again and again and again for understanding what Jesus has actually done for you. And who you now are if you are in Christ. In fact, uh, J.I. Packer, who's a relatively well-known theologian, he once wrote this about the idea of being God's children, he being our father. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child. And having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. In other words, if we don't grasp this, we do need to ask ourselves, do we understand what Christianity is all about? Knowing God to be your father and knowing yourself to be God's child is at the very heart of the story of the Bible. And so important are these truths that Paul, he gives us an opportunity here to linger over what he means by being sons of God, being adopted as sons, being, becoming his children, becoming heirs to the promises that he has made in scriptures through Jesus And so what I want to do is in lingering over this with us, he actually helps us to see how we become God's child and then how we can enjoy being God's child. So how we become God's child and how you can enjoy that. But before we can really tackle either of those, we need to first ask the question and look at how Paul helps us understand what is the opposite of being God's child. So look with me here in verses 1 through 3. Paul, uh, the connection here between the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of verse 20 of of chapter 4 is very tight. Paul says in the end of chapter 3, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And in verses 1 to 2, Paul begins to flesh out a little bit more what he's talking about. He uses an illustration of a young child who is the heir of his family's estate. He's borrowing from concepts and ideas of his day and time. 
And he tells us about this situation that would have been familiar of a child who's the heir of his family's estate, but as he, he's not yet grown up to the age at which he will then enjoy the freedom and the privileges of his inheritance. And so Paul describes this child in the, by way of this illustration in a way that uh, joined up with verse 3 here in a moment is incredibly important for us to understand. He says there in verse 1 about this child who has not yet come of age, he says, this child is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Now, what does Paul mean by that? What what are we to make of that? In verse 3, if we keep reading, Paul says, in the same way, that is, in the same way as the story I just told you, the illustration of this child who has not yet come of age, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, here's what Paul is doing. He's drawing a comparison. When he says, in the same way as that uh, illustration of the young child who hasn't come of age, And then he describes us. And in this context, he's referring to himself and to the Galatians to whom he's writing, who were made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And so we're to read here that Paul is essentially putting both Jews and Gentiles in the same situation. In other words, Paul is giving us a window in on the opposite of what it means to be a child of God. And in short, what he's helping us to see is that the opposite of a son of God or a child of God is one who is enslaved. A one who is enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, what on earth does that mean? I will just tell you, uh, I will not claim to know precisely what that means because nobody really does. (laughs) Uh, You can look at any number of commentaries and there are any number of of ways of understanding what does Paul mean by these basic principles of the world? What I want you to hear is sort of the sum total of how folks try to make sense of this in light of the original context and perhaps what Paul was referring to when he was writing is Paul is referring to the who we are by nature that we as human beings, we will look for validation and acceptance from someone or something. That the basic principles of the world really describe anything that you might look to to put your trust in other than Jesus. Whether it be a system of thought, whether it be a series of uh, accolades, whether it be prestige, whatever it is that you may look to, to build upon, to know that you're okay. It could be parenting. It could be your work. It could be other people's opinions of you. The basic principles of the world are set in opposition to the gospel the good news about Jesus. And so what Paul is saying is that every human being is enslaved 
to self-salvation strategies. Every human being is enslaved to finding their identity, their worth, their value somewhere else other than in Jesus. Somewhere else other than in this new identity that in Christ we are all sons of God through faith. So, on the one hand, Paul is describing humanity as a whole here. But he's also helping us understand our own experience. If you are a Christian, why is it that from time to time, perhaps more often than not, you read the pages of Scripture, you come here to worship, you hear preaching, you sing songs, and this thing we call good news doesn't seem to land? Why does that happen? Here, when Paul talks about that we were children, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, he also gives us a window into what can happen, how we, why we fail to experience the freedom and joy of God's rescue. And it has, to do, has everything to do with knowing yourself as a child of God. And knowing God as your father. Paul's point here for us is to realize that when we find ourselves uh, becoming bitter, hard-hearted, indifferent, um, discouraged to the point of devastating despair, what's happening? Paul's answer would be, you're living like a slave. Someone who is enslaved to getting your own worthiness somewhere other than in Jesus. You're not living as a a son or a daughter. You've forgotten who you are. You have forgotten what the good news proclaims to you and pronounces over you and promises to you. So then what's what's the way out of this problem when you find yourself there? Paul he gives us the answer by, in verse 4 by uh, the contrast that you see when he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is the work of the Son, is the way out of this problem. It is the Son who makes us of age. How do you get out of this problem that Paul illustrates in verse 1? Is not, you cannot do it. You cannot make yourself come of age. Paul says, that's that's God's job. The timing for that was in God's plan of redemption, that in the fullness of time, he would send his son. And that it's in the son that we are brought into age, that we, are, we come of age. And how does he do that? Look in verse 5. The son, God sent his son to redeem those who were under the law. It is the son who sets you free. The word here to redeem essentially means to release a slave from its owner. It is, uh, Paul is borrowing again language from his day and time It's language about release of freedom, of buying a slave's freedom, setting someone free. 
And therefore, when, when Paul says here that Jesus came to redeem us, if you remember earlier, Paul said that uh, earlier in chapter 3 that we were held captive under the law. And therefore, what Paul is telling us is that Jesus has come to set us free from the law and, and its demands and its condemning demands that in Jesus we are redeemed from the imprisonment of it. From Remember, Paul refers to it as a guardian that shows us that we cannot rescue ourselves In fact, Paul earlier in chapter 3 had written that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So how can you be sure if Jesus came to redeem you from under the law, how can you be sure that what he came to do is sufficient to free you? That what he came to do is precisely what you need? You look in verse 4, Paul gives us the answer because Jesus was born of woman, which is a very succinct way of Paul trying to tell us that Jesus, though the Son of God, was a human being, and that he was born under the law, under the obligations of the law. Paul includes those two very brief phrases in order to show you and me that Jesus came to occupy the very same place that you do. That Jesus came to live and to walk where you live and walk. That he came to enter into the exact same situation as you in relationship to God. That he has come in that same way, that same place as a human being, born under the same obligations in order to fulfill them in order to do for you what you could not do for yourself. And it's, I want to pause with you and, and get, try to get you to think for a moment about what is Paul telling us here? God is telling you how precious you are to him, how valuable you are to him in Jesus. When he says that Jesus came to redeem you, do you see what he's saying? He is saying that Jesus is the redemption price. That Jesus is how is, is God's, how willing God was to, to send his son to die in the place of sinners so that you could go free. You see, behind the cross, you see the love of God for you Because on the cross, what you see is the lengths to which God was willing to go so that you could be welcomed home, so that you could belong, that you could be adopted, that you would know yourself a son of God. Do you you struggle? Do you struggle with that? Do you struggle to believe or to enjoy this new identity of which Paul speaks? Well, here's what you need to do. You need to consider often and daily that God sent his son as the price of your redemption for your freedom. You see, in the words of Eugene Peterson puts it so well, he says, in light of the gospel, you are now valuable not to do something, but to be someone. 
You are now valuable not to do something, but to be someone. That's a picture of what it means to be a son of God. But there's more. Not only does Jesus redeem us, he also secures our adoption. This is the second reason that we see in verse 5 that God sent Jesus so that we might receive adoption as sons. And sometimes this phrase here, adoption as sons, in verse 5 is translated as the full rights of sons. And both of those are trying to get across the idea of a single word, which in the original is simply sonship as the closest uh, translation that we have for it. And Paul here, he's borrowing an idea from his day and time to show us something beautiful about the gospel. And one writer helps us to see it like this. He says, in the Greco-Roman world, a childless wealthy man could take one of his servants and adopt him. And at the moment of adoption, he ceased to be a slave and received all the financial and legal privileges within the estate and outside in the world as a son and heir. Though by birth, he was a slave without a relationship with the father, he now receives the legal status of son. You see, Jesus came not only to redeem you, Not only so that your sin and guilt could be transferred to him. Jesus came to secure your adoption. Which is to say, to transfer his identity, his privileges, his rights as the son of God. And transfer those to you. Now why is it so important to keep those two things together? The reason it's so important to keep those two things together is because if you think that the gospel is merely that Jesus came to set you free, you will never be able to deal with the fact of your own failures. Freedom is not all that you need. What you need in addition to freedom is to know that you're loved. Imagine the person who's been in prison for 30 or 40 years. They have no assets. They have no resume. They have no way of making their way in the world. But their sentence is up, and they're released from jail, and they are now free. That person walks out into the world and they have nothing except themselves and what they make of themselves. Do you see, if you think that to be a Christian is simply that you're now set free, that's where you're left. You're still left with you to make good on that. But what it means to be adopted as a son or a daughter means that you now have the rights and the privileges, you have the inheritance of Jesus himself. You have the love and acceptance of Jesus himself. That means that you can walk out into the world without fear. That means that you don't have to be afraid to face up to what you're really like, to admit your weaknesses and failings, because you've been given an inheritance 
you have rights and privileges now legally in God's sight because of what Jesus has done for you. And we have to keep both of those together, that we are set free, but we are also adopted as sons. Now, what if you still aren't moved by that? Or what if that's something that you know and you've heard maybe, maybe you've heard that many times, but yet you fail to experience the reality of it in your everyday life? We see the answer to that here in verse 6 when Paul goes on and he writes, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You see, the Bible never intends for you to understand Christianity as as merely information. It's just ideas that you need to understand and master. No, what Paul is telling us here is that the good news about what Jesus has done in verse 5, God wants you to experience it in the depths of your being. And in order to work that, that redemption and that adoption into your life, what does he do? He not only sends his son, but what does he do? He sends the spirit of his son into your life to live in you in order that you might know who you are and to whom you belong. This is all experiential language. Notice the way in which he, Paul communicates this. What he's trying to help us to see is very simply put is that the work of the Spirit is to create in you the very same relationship that Jesus enjoys with his heavenly Father. And what might that look like? Well, let's look at what he's saying here in verse 6 and try to draw out a, a few implications. First of all, look, when he, the, the word here, the verb that he uses for crying. Paul here is echoing a prayer of Jesus on the night when he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's echoing the way in which Jesus spoke to his heavenly Father. This is about prayer. This is talking about your prayer life. That when, when Paul here refers to and uses this language of crying out, what he's saying is there is, just, there is no perfect prayer. As a son or a daughter, prayer now becomes a spontaneous and transparent part of your life. You know, think about how children relate to their parents. Children do not sit down and think first before they're going to talk to you. And even when you do start talking to them, a lot of the time they don't stop. Children are, they're spontaneous in their speech with their parents. They don't even think about it. When they think they have a need, even if they don't have a need, they're crying out, making it known. And here, Paul is helping us to see the Spirit. God has sent His Spirit so that you would pray like that. That you would become so familiar with your Heavenly Father that it would just flow off your tongue without any hesitation over anything. 
But not only that, he says that the Spirit cries, Abba, Father. That this term here is totally unknown in the Old Testament. To think of God as your Father. It's a term of intimacy, of closeness. It signifies confidence of love and assurance of welcome. Here's what this means, just in these couple words. That to know yourself as an adopted child of God, that you belong to him, what it means is that you need to learn to assume that God loves you and he is there for you. No matter how you feel or what you think. That's what the gospel teaches you. It gives you the freedom to assume that God loves you as a conviction regardless of how you feel or what you think. And Jesus is the argument for that. He's the proof that that is true. And then third, this, this, again, this verb translated crying is a really strong word. It refers to a deep and profound passion and feeling. And therefore, the Spirit's work is to set you free to pray. That you no longer here now have to hold back. You no longer have to hide. Because you're a son or you're a daughter. And I'll give you an example. I think this is really hard. And I'll I'll speak personally by way of example and see if, if this resonates with you. Think about times in your life when things do not go well. Perhaps you have something that you have to complete and you don't get it, you're not sure you're going to get it done on time and you're really unhappy with it. And you find yourself driving home and you're You're outraged. You can feel your face begin to burn, and you're just outraged and angry. And perhaps you might even start praying, only to discover that who you're the most angry at is God himself. Why won't you help me? Why won't you make my life different? Why can't you see what I see about why my life is miserable, and you aren't doing anything. Now, I will tell you, as your pastor, I have prayed virtually that, those words verbatim many times, and I, it's very uncomfortable. I, I don't really believe in the whole strike with lightning thing, but I had thought that. <laughs> Can you really say that? Can you really say, God, I am so angry at you, I think you're wrong. I disagree. Why won't you change this? And I just want you to know, the psalmists say that kind of thing again and again and again. How you know you're beginning to understand and experience what it means to be a child of God, dare I say, you actually admit And voice to him how angry you might be. Or how hurt you might be. Not by someone else and what they did to you. But because of what God is not doing. Or he's allowing to take place. God has sent his son to redeem you. God has sent his spirit to live in you. So that you would know this gospel and this freedom. 
And this is the astonishing bottom line. To be a child of God means we are now welcomed and treated as God's only son. That all that is true of him is now true of you. So to know yourself a son and to know God as your father means you need to look to Jesus as the son and who he is. And that by faith you are now in him. That is your identity. That's how you know you belong to God and he belongs to you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you would help us to linger over passages like this. That though from time to time, uh, they're difficult. Uh, They speak of things that perhaps aren't as familiar to us. And yet, Father, the, the riches of these words are ones that we desperately need. And so we ask, Father, that you would, by your spirit, as we have read in this passage, you would help us to cry out to you as our Father. And we pray that the spirit of your Son, who now dwells in your people, would teach us and persuade us that we belong to you, not because of who we are, but precisely despite who we are, that we belong to you because of Jesus and what he has come to do and has accomplished and is even now working out into our lives. For it's in his name that we pray, amen.